Please take your Bibles. Turn with me to the book of Romans, chapter 11. As we continue our series in this glorious book, we come to chapter 11, verses 17 to 24. For context, I'm going to begin in verse 11, and we'll read through verse 24. This is God's holy, inerrant, inspired word. Paul writes, So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles, so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now, I am speaking to you Gentiles, inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, well, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God, severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted, contrary to nature, into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? Amen. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray again and ask him to help us as we study his word. Oh Lord, you are holy, holy, holy. And we ask that you would give us grace to come before you, humble, contrite in spirit, trembling at your word. Lord, would the words of my mouth, the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable and pleasing in your sight through Jesus Christ, our only savior, in whose name we pray. Amen. The story of how the Lord saved me is very similar, I, I bet, to many of you who grew up in a Christian family. I don't remember a day when I did not know the Lord, when I uh, was not seeking to, to follow him, learning about him, growing in my knowledge of him. My parents were both converted while college students at LSU, and uh, I was born when my mom was 21 and my dad was 23, and so uh, I grew up as a covenant child. They wouldn't have necessarily used that language, uh, but I was a covenant child in a, a new Christian home, 
uh, I was learning God's word. I was hearing the gospel both from them and from the churches that we were uh, a part of in, in Baton Rouge. Uh, I, I didn't have a memorable uh, conversion experience, right? The way that the apostle Paul did, that he could, he could look back to and, and tell the story of and, and date. Uh, rather, my experience was more like uh, Paul's son in the faith, Timothy. Uh, when he writes to Timothy in, in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and says, From childhood you have known the sacred writings that are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Right? That's, that's my testimony. It's the testimony of many of you here this morning. Uh, and so for those of us who have that testimony, right, oftentimes, unlike the, the younger brother in, in Luke 15, in the parable of the, the prodigal son, right? Uh, when you've grown up in the church, oftentimes you're the good kid, at least externally, right? Uh, and so uh, that means your sin struggles are, are, are much more like the elder brother in Jesus's parable. Uh, as the Lord grew my faith and my knowledge uh, through high school in particular, uh, he started to show me uh, how uh, much I was like that elder brother, right? How much I was like those to whom Jesus spoke the parable in Luke chapter 18, when, when Luke tells us he spoke this parable to those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and looked down on others with contempt. And so I saw more and more my own heart, right? That, that proneness uh, to self-righteousness, that proneness uh, to arrogance, to pride. It's often a sin that, that is besetting for those who are religious, Right? It's often a temptation uh, that we who, who know Christ, who've grown up with Christ, but, but who have perhaps a, a smaller view of the gospel than we ought, right? to, to compare ourselves, not with God and his holiness, but with others. Right? To focus on what we do and don't do better than other people. Uh, to be self-reliant and external in our relationship with the Lord and self-righteous, prideful in our relationship with, with others, right? To, to smugly disdain those who don't have it all together the way that we think we do, the way that we portray ourselves to others. In a word, to be, to be prideful and presumptuous. Well, well, here in the book of Romans, Paul, in several places, Romans 2 and 3, Romans 9 and 10, ha has talked about how the Jews were pridefully presumptuous. How they presumed upon the riches of God's kindness and forbearance and, and patience. How they took their, their privileges for granted. How they focused on the external biological relationship that they had to Abraham and the, the external covenantal relationship they had, that ritual connection they had to Abraham in circumcision. The Jews, as Paul has told us, sought to establish their own righteousness without true heart change without true heart religion, without saving faith. Well, now here in Romans chapter 11, we have seen Paul turn the mirror away from the Jews and to the Gentiles. Right? He, last week, we saw how he explained God's plan of, of using his hardening of the Jews, using uh, their rejection of Jesus to save the Gentiles, to bring the Gentiles in. And, and then he, he plans to use the conversion of the Gentiles to provoke the Jews to envy and to jealousy, to, to bring them to faith in Jesus Christ. But as we see this morning, rather than being humble, rather than seeking to attract the Jews to faith, Paul realizes, Paul sees, Paul has heard that the Gentiles there in the church of Rome had become prideful. They had become presumptuous. 
They were acting like Jews toward the Jews. They were Pharisees toward the Pharisees. You notice Paul's exhortations in, in verses 18 and 19, very specific. Do not be arrogant. Do not become proud, he writes. And since Paul's desire was to save both Gentiles and Jews, this pride he knew had to be dealt with decisively. It had to be killed or it would be killing them. And if it was not killed, then, then Paul knows the Jews will not be brought in, right? They will see your pride and they will not desire to come to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so in our text this morning, uh, Paul gives to this church in Rome and he gives to us three things that we must remember in order to put down pride and presumption, in order to kill these besetting sins. First, he, he's going to tell us, you must remember what the church of Jesus is. Secondly, he says, you must remember how God saves sinners. And third, you must remember who God is. Now, as we mentioned, Paul is making these points specifically about the way the Gentiles were prideful toward the Jews. And so I want us to, to apply it in that way ourselves. But, but the points that Paul makes apply universally to all of our relationships, right? wherever pride might be directed. And so as we work our way through this text, right, I want you to examine first your attitude toward Jewish folk, but also examine your attitude toward anyone who does not believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and toward all of your fellow believers in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. So first, Paul will tell us here in this text, if you want to put to death pride, if you want to put to death presumption, you must remember what the church of Jesus Christ is. Now, we ended last week in verse 16 with a verse that I never, didn't really ever get to, uh, but I want us to, to use it to, to launch into this passage because you see, Paul ends that, that little paragraph there in verse 16 with two word pictures to convey the confidence that he has that God's plan was not a pipe dream, right? God's plan that, that the Jews would be brought back into salvation through the, the, the Gentiles' faith. Right, that he would bring the elect Jews to saving faith. It wasn't something that we could wonder about. Rather, Paul says there in verse 16, if the dough is offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. If the root is holy, so are the branches. He uses these two word pictures. The first one comes from Numbers 15, right, where God commanded Israel to present to him the first batch of, of their baking when they entered into the promised land. And, and Paul is arguing that the, the consecration of the first fruits, which I would think and believe that refers to the earliest converts out of Judaism to Christianity, that that, that first fruits implies and infers the consecration of the rest. The, the point being that, that more converts will come. And then Paul turns the image to an agricultural one of a root and branches that grow from the root. And he's making the same point. The set-apartness of the root, right, a reference to the, the patriarchs, the early forefathers of, of the, the Jewish faith, the, the, the set-apartness, the holiness of that root implies the set-apartness of the branches. And from that picture, Paul jumps off into our text. And notice in verse 17 that he repeats God's plan. Some of the branches were broken off, and you, Gentiles, although a wild olive shoot, you were grafted in among the others, and you now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree. But look at Paul's logic. If this has happened, and that means if in the sense of because it has happened, right? 
if it has happened, do not be arrogant toward the branches, he says. If you are, remember that it's not you who supports the root, but it's the root that supports you. See, what Paul is saying to these Gentiles is that if you want to kill your pride, if you want to kill your presumption, you must remember what the church of Jesus Christ is. And what is the church of Jesus Christ? The church of Jesus Christ is the Israel of God that has been in existence since Abraham's day. The church is Israel. The church is the Israel of God. Here Paul is using an image from, that he got from Jeremiah chapter 11 of, of the Israel as a cultivated olive tree. And he's reminding us that when, when Jesus came and the Jews rejected him, God did not completely dig up and uproot the Jewish tree and plant a whole new tree. Some of you have done that. I'm trying to do that right now. I've got some azaleas in one of our beds and, and they're, they're old, they're overgrown. They're just kind of gnarly. They don't look good. We want blueberries, right? And so we're, we're digging out the azaleas and we're going to put in a completely new plant, a blueberry plant, right? Well, that's not what God did when Jesus Christ came and when the Jews rejected him. No, God, in moving from the old covenant to the new covenant, is still growing the same tree that he planted at the beginning. He's still relating to his people within the same covenant of grace. As he moves from old to new, it's not a different covenant. It's the covenant of grace from beginning to end. God is still building the same church that he has always been building. Yes, he, he broke off the dead, fruitless branches of the olive tree that was Israel, the church. And he grafted Gentile branches, Gentile believers into Israel, into the church, so that we might partake, Paul says, of the, the rich nutrients, of the, the root of the tree, like all the other living branches do. See what Paul is saying. We Gentiles were not a part of this olive tree by nature. We were from a wild olive tree, right? We were no notoriously unfruitful. And yet we share in the blessings of God's covenants of promise with the patriarchs. We trust in Jesus, that long awaited for Jewish Messiah, whose blessings were also for the nations. How did we confess our faith this morning from Ephesians 2? We once were strangers to the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise. But we are no longer strangers and aliens to the commonwealth of Israel, to the covenants of promise. We're no longer without hope and without God. We've been brought into Israel, into these covenants of promise, into the covenant of grace. Brothers and sisters, do not miss the importance of what Paul is teaching about the church here. So many Christians have been and still are influenced by a teaching that's called dispensationalism uh, that sees the church as something completely different from Israel. The church is a mere parenthesis between God's dealings with Israel before Jesus came and his dealings with Israel after the church gets raptured from this world. No, no. Romans 11 demolishes this sort of thinking and theology because it says Israel is not a separate people of God for whom he has a separate plan than he has for the church. No, the, the church existed as Israel before Jesus came and the church continues as the true Israel of God today, as Paul says 
in Galatians 6. The church is not the replacement of Israel. The church is the continuation of Israel, the continuation of God's people. As believers in Jesus Christ, we have been welcomed as members of Abraham's family. We have been grafted into the Israel of God. We are fellow members with the Jews of God's household, the church. There is always and there will always be one people of God, one way of salvation, one plan of salvation. And Paul is saying, this is what you must remember, what the church is, the true Israel of God, if you want to put to death your pride and your presumption. Look at how he, he puts it. Do not be arrogant. How can you be prideful and arrogant toward the branches that have been broken off as if somehow you were better than they were? You were unfruitful branches. You were coming from a wild olive tree. And God graciously gave you faith and grafted you into his covenant people contrary to nature, as he says in verse 24. The cultivated tree, look at verse 24, the cultivated olive tree is their own olive tree, the Jews' own olive tree. How much easier, quote unquote, would it be for the Lord to graft those natural branches back into it? So we cannot be prideful and arrogant toward the Jews who are broken off. No, Paul says, you you were branches from a wild olive tree. You don't belong here. You have no inherent right to be a part of this cultivated olive tree. And it's not just those who are broken off, but even, Paul would say, the Jewish branches that are still on the tree. How can we look down on them as if they are second-class citizens? You're a branch just like they are, Paul would say. You're not the root. You don't supply anything or or nourish the root. You don't support the root. Rather, the, the Jewish root, the patriarchs, the forefathers in the faith, The covenants of promise, they nourish us, they support us. Apart from that root, apart from the history of of God's dealings with his old covenant people, we would still bear no fruit. We would still have no salvation. We would still be in that wild olive tree. And it's these same considerations that lead us to humility, not just with regard to, to, to Jews, but with anyone who's not believing in Jesus Christ and to everyone who is a part of the church of Jesus today. What do we have that we did not receive? What do we have that we did not receive that was not given to us? And if the church is one body, is is one people, if if all of us are are merely branches nourished by the root, then how can we say that we're better than any other believer, more worthy, more deserving of God's favor than any other branch in the tree? We are merely branches on this one tree. So Paul says, if you want to put to death pride, if you want to put to death presumption, remember what the church of Jesus Christ is. But secondly, he says that we must remember how God saves sinners. See, Paul in verse 19 suspects that the Gentiles are going to raise an objection to what he's just written. And so in verse 19, he preemptively raises it first. He says, well, you're going to say this to me. Well, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. And Paul says, well, you're right. You're right, that's true. And yet, you are taking that truth and you are wrongly applying it. Yes, the Jews were wicked. They were unfruitful branches and God broke them off. And yes, God grafted you into this tree of Israel, the church in their place. But instead of making you prideful and arrogant, Paul says, this reality should lead you to humility. And instead of making you presumptuous and and careless, this reality should should lead you to a reverent fear of God. And why is that? 
Because we know that God saves sinners through faith. We know how God saves sinners through faith in Jesus. Look at what he says there in verse 20. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. See, Paul is saying the fact that you were saved and you stand fast through faith should make you humble. Because if faith is the difference between broken off Jewish branches and grafted in Gentile branches, then why are you saved? It's not that you were more godly than they were. It's not that, that you were more wise or God saw more potential in you than he saw in them. No, it was because you had faith. And why did you have faith? Well, you didn't come up with that. You didn't manufacture that. God graciously gave it to you. And what is faith? Faith looks not to its own efforts and achievements and sacrifices, but faith looks to the efforts and the achievements and the sacrifices of another, namely Jesus Christ. Remember what Paul wrote back in chapter four when he said, that is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, Abraham's offspring, whether Jew or Gentile. The gospel of Jesus Christ, that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, that should not lead us to boasting, as we said to the children from Ephesians chapter 2, but it should lead us to humility. Humility. But God's way of saving us doesn't just keep us from pride, it keeps us from presumption as well. That is what Paul is saying here when he writes in verses 20 and 21, so do not become proud, but fear, for if God did not spare the natural branches neither will he spare you. Now, you may read this and scratch your head on several levels. First, when Paul says that we should fear, right, he's not there referring to abject terror, the, the fear of a, of a wife who lives with an abusive husband. No, he, he's referring to the, the fear of a son for a, a holy and a godly father, right? A, a godly, a reverent fear that takes warning seriously, that, that knows that choices have consequences. It's a fear that, that keeps watch vigilantly because it desires to please its father, right? We desire to please the Lord our God, and yet we are aware how deceitful our heart can be. We are aware how easy it is to grow complacent and lazy, to take our privileges for granted, to just assume that they'll be ours no matter what we do. But the Bible teaches that God saves through faith. And the faith that saves is a persevering faith. It's a faith that continues in the kindness of God, as Paul puts it here. A faith that remains even though it ebbs and, and flows. A faith that doesn't persevere to the end is not a genuine saving faith. And throughout the Bible, what do we hear but the call to examine ourselves, to see if we are in the faith, 2 Corinthians 13. We hear Peter tell us to be diligent to make our calling and our election sure. You see, it's vital that we see that even after the coming of Jesus, what Paul said in Romans 9 verse 6 is still true. Not all Israel is Israel. Not everyone who professes faith in Jesus possesses faith in Jesus. There's always been a visible church and an invisible church, both under the old covenant and the new covenant. What do I mean by visible and, and is invisible? 
Well, the visible church consists of all those who would profess faith in Jesus and their children. But the invisible church consists only the elect of God, right? Only those who truly are genuine believers are part of what we call the church in its invisible form. We see in Jesus's parables in Matthew 13, this, this very thing taught that the visible church will always be made up of wheat and weeds, right? Those who are genuine believers and those who are false professors. Or, or take Jesus' parable of the sower. In the visible church, there will always be rocky and thorny soil hearers of the word. And for a season, they will look like good soil. They'll bear much foliage, but they'll never bear fruit. Eventually, 1 John 2.19 says, they will go out from us. They'll go out from the church because they were never of us. They were never of the church. Verse 22, he says that those who do not continue in faith, who don't continue in the kindness of God, who don't continue in reliance upon God's goodness and grace, but in presumption begin relying on themselves, they will be cut off just like the unbelieving Jews were cut off. Brothers and sisters, that's why the Bible is filled with warning passages. That's why the Bible is, is filled with conditional statements like you find there in verse 22. We saw them, didn't we? In Hebrews 3 this morning, did you notice how many times Paul, or the author to Hebrews, wasn't Paul, the author to Hebrews said, if indeed, if indeed you continue, you persevere, you remain. The Bible speaks in that way. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. Colossians chapter 1, we see the same thing. God says that that, that he's, he's reconciled you through Jesus Christ, if indeed you continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast. Why did Jesus, why did the apostles speak in this way? Why did they preach in this way? Because they knew that the church was a mixed multitude made of believers and unbelievers, elect and non-elect. Now, yes, we want to make sure we affirm loudly and clearly the elect will persevere in faith, but they will persevere in faith. God will preserve them and will ensure that they persevere in faith. And God's spirit will use these very warnings to create that godly fear, a fear that leads us away from presumption, away from pride, to to a constancy of faith. Again, ebbing and flowing, right? We will always say with the, the father in the gospels, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. And yet that seed of faith will always be there. And this this godly fear, right, leading to this pious self-distrust, as William Plummer, the Southern Presbyterian of the 19th century, put it, a self-distrust because we know ourselves and we know our God. So Paul wants to say, if you want to get rid of pride, if you want to get rid of presumption, remember how you were saved. Remember how God saved you through faith, faith, that fears, faith that perseveres, faith that knows itself, and faith that knows its God. Which brings us to the last point. Paul says we must remember not just what the church of Jesus is, not just how we were saved, how God saves us. We also must remember who God is. Look again at verse 22. Note then, he says, remember this, the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. 
You see, Paul is saying the, the, the providence of God toward Jew and Gentile in history reveals the character of God. And it's as you know God in the full orb nature of his attributes that you'll be enabled more and more to kill pride and presumption in your own heart. Think about what Paul says here, the kindness and the severity of God. I wonder this morning, is this the God that you believe in? Is this the God that you believe in? A God who is both kind beyond all measure and who is righteously severe. Not, not harsh and cruel and mean. That's, that's not what the word severe is referring to. No, but a God who is decisive in holy justice. Don't we see these twin depictions of God throughout the Bible? Take Exodus 34 as just one example. When, when God reveals his glory to Moses, he says this, I am the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth. I keep loving kindness for thousands. I forgive iniquity, transgressions, and sin. Yet, he says, I will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. I will visit the iniquity of the fathers and the children to the third and fourth generation. God is kind. And God is severe in justice toward those who presume upon the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience. Those who persist in unbelief, he is severe, Paul says. Toward those who believe and continue to rest in the kindness of God that has already been shown to them, the Lord proves himself to be kind. C.S. Lewis gets it right, doesn't he? In his book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, I'm sure you remember this scene if you've read the book when when Mr. Beaver tells Susan that Aslan is a lion, she's taken aback, right? She thought Aslan, the great king of Narnia, was a man. And she says, well, I will feel rather, feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Is he safe? Mr. Beaver says, safe? Who said anything about being safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king. That's what Paul is saying here. God is not safe. God is a severe God. But God is kind. He is good. And it's as we take note of, as we meditate upon both his kindness and his severity, his goodness and mercy toward those who trust in him and his severity toward those who persist in unbelief. It's as we meditate on who God is that we'll be able to put down pride and presumption. Again, ask the question, how can we be arrogant if God is both kind and severe? How can we be presumptuous if, as we already saw in verse 22, God has promised to cut us off if we show ourselves to be hypocrites, if we refuse to continue in his kindness? How can we be proud if God has promised in verse 23 to graft unbelieving Jews back into their own olive tree if they forsake unbelief and self-righteousness and trust in Jesus Christ alone for salvation? And in that act of grace, of grafting sinners into the, the tree, don't you see another attribute of God? How does Paul put it in verse 23? God is able to do this. God has the power to graft them back in again. And again, as we meditate upon the power of God, pride and presumption are put to death. If God is able to save someone like me, if he's able to save someone like you, if he's able to save the Jews who are so far away from him, then God can save anyone. He can do what man cannot. He can take dead branches that you've pulled off of an azalea bush or a blueberry bush 
And he can graft those dead branches back onto the living tree. And he can bear much fruit through those dead branches. We can never write off anyone as a hopeless cause, as a lost cause. Why? Because God is able, God has all power to save whom he will. So this morning, you who profess faith in Jesus Christ, this passage puts before you these choices. Will you walk in pride? Or will you walk in humility? Will you walk in presumption? Or will you walk in godly fear? Will you put to death this arrogance and this boasting, this complacency? And will you walk in a reverent fear of God and a humility because of what the church is, the Israel of God, because of how God has saved sinners through faith and because of who he is, a kind God, a severe God, a powerful God. By the grace of God, may we stand fast in faith and in fear. But if you're here this morning and you've never trusted in Jesus Christ, I pray that you too will see the kindness, the severity and the power of God, that you would hear the promise of God in this passage to graft into his church all who would trust in Jesus Christ. That just like these words would lead believers away from complacency, that these words would lead you who are not believers away from despair, that they would call you to come to Jesus Christ just as you are, to put your faith in him, to walk by faith and not by trusting in your own deeds, in your own sacrifices. Look to the sacrifice of Jesus Trust in him and he will save you. Let's pray together. Lord, our God, we thank you for this text that reminds us of so many glorious truths, all with the aim to lead us away from pride, to lead us away from presumption. Lord, only you can do this. You see our hearts. Lord, you know the way that we treat other people. You know the way we think about other people. You know the way we think about our relationship with you. Lord, would you be pleased in the hearts of your people, your saints, the Israel of God, would you be pleased, O Lord, to work humility, to work this reverent fear. Lord, we cannot do this in our own strength. Would you give us faith? Would you help our unbelief? Would you enable us, Lord, to walk in that faith, to walk in that hope, to walk in this confidence, to know you better and better every day. We pray these things in Jesus' name, our only Savior. Amen.